0: Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books. This episode's featured release is It's Ugly Because It's Personal by Ryan Sayles. In the city of Carcassa, gunshots devastate the night as a patrol officer makes a traffic stop. The occupants, three dealers caught in the act of muling, set into motion a course of actions that can only end badly. Now one is dead another fleeing on foot, and the third tearing through neighborhoods in a bumper-car style chase. Furious, grief-stricken, officers are on their heels with their brothers fighting for his life on the side of the road. The shooter escapes, and the PD begins their hunt to find the shooter before he lucks out and fades into memory. With what information they have, they dig. The dirt that is the shooter's life getting thrown over their shoulders by the shovel full. Family, friends, employment, any avenue of refuge for him begins to burn. Things get complicated along the way, the kind of complicated that goes into a body bag. The art of flushing out the enemy is a sacred practice, best done with smoldering rage. But after a man has nowhere to hide, having him out in the open might be worse. It's Ugly Because It's Personal is available from Down and Out's website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indybound, Or ask for it from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes, unless it's really bad and then it makes me start over. This is season two. This season contains adaptations of stories published in the 1800s, these stories are some of the first to be considered mysteries. For that reason, this season is called The Originators. Today's story is about loyalty, bad assumptions, and a prize worth more than money. This story is told in two parts. This is the first, episode 5A, Sergeant Cuff and the Moonstone Diamond, an adaptation of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Jack, so today's story is set in Yorkshire, England. The location of Lady Verinder's country estate is not given by a name. It's described as being on the coast, but not which coast. And as you'll see, the coast has a role in this story. Only two towns were actually named in the original, uh, Friesing Hall and Cobbs Hole. Searching for Friesing Hall, England, I found one in the district in the city of Bradford, but that's not on a coast and Cobb's Hole I didn't find at all. So that gives me my freedom, and I picked the coastal Yorkshire town of Ravenscar. Yes, I picked it for its name. It seemed to fit a mystery. So Ravenscar is on the eastern coast of England, ten miles north of Scarborough, and we all know that from the famous Scarborough Fair song. In the late 4th century, it was the location of a Roman signal station, which I thought was pretty cool. Ravenscar is some 250 miles north of the Royal Observatory, home to the Prime Meridian. And according to Wikipedia, at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, plans were made to turn the village into a holiday resort that rivaled nearby Scarborough. Roads were laid out, and a few houses were built, and all the sewers were laid. But because of the long trek down to the rocky beach, Ravenscar never caught on, and the development was left unfinished. A town with sewers and streets, but no houses. I'm sorry, I just found that fascinating. Every time we do one of these, Jack, I find a new place that I want to go to. So The Moonstone was published in 1868, and the story is set some 20 years earlier. It is considered one of the first detective novels. (laughs) This is an incredibly long story, told by multiple storytellers. One review said it was 11 tellers, although, to be honest, I didn't count. It had over 81,000 ratings on Goodreads with an average of 3.9. So here's one five star review. Four and a half stars rounding up for this 1868 Victoria area era mystery, often considered the first English language detective novel. I don't, think, I don't know. Wilkie Collins spins a literary web that starts out slowly but inexorably pulls you in. I finished the last half of the book in one extended readathon. He has a gift for writing as vastly different characters, I totally agree with that, who take who each take a turn telling or writing part of the story, and a droll sometimes very sarcastic sense of humor. And here's a 3-star review. I ended up liking the story of the diamond stolen from an Indian sacred statue, but mostly I liked it for the characters who tell the story in 11 different narratives. My special favorite was Better Edge, an old steward of the country house where much of the story takes place, who relies on Robinson Crusoe for advice, it works for him, and the wonderfully imagined and named Ezra Jennings, who turns up late in the proceedings but ultimately has a hand in the resolution of the case. If you want a Victorian, quote, the first mystery, complete with a detective, lots of villains, a suicide, a murder, a stolen gem, a trio of Indians, an unrequited love, and more, then this is for you. However, if you want a punchy, fast-paced police crime book, then give this a miss. All in all, I'm glad I read it, but it was very tough going through the middle, and the end was very satisfactory. So I totally agree with that review. That... This was so many times, I almost didn't finish this book because it was just long and meandering. But when I got to the end, I was like, okay, I see why that was cool. So you want to learn more about the original author? (laughs) So William Wilkie Collins, he dropped William in his writing. Um, He was both a writer and playwright. And his most famous novel was The Woman in White, which was written in 1859. Uh, It was his fifth novel and was considered among his first mysteries. I got to admit, I tried starting with that one and it was a did not finish for me. Now I see it was his style and perhaps I should have persevered, but yeah, I didn't. So Wilkie was a professional writer. The other authors we featured, Poe, Pinkerton, Bulwer-Whitten, Twain, they all had professions outside of writing. Wilkie didn't seem to. He wrote a lot. He wrote over 20 novels, 100 short stories, and then a bunch of plays, essays, and articles. In 1980, the Wilkie Collins Society was created to promote interest in Wilkie and his work. I thought this was interesting. So officially, Wilkie never married. Unofficially, he had two families. He lived with a woman named Caroline and her daughter from her first marriage, Harriet. 10 years later, he met a woman named Martha. She would have three children with Wilkie. For the last 20 years of his life, he split time between these two families. I don't know, where he found time to write, trying to keep up with two families. Or maybe he had to write a lot because he had to keep up with two families. Okay, so we're about ready to begin our story. I'm going to start by explaining why we're doing adaptations of these early stories instead of performing them as written. Really two reasons. The language from the 1800s can be very hard. I mean, honestly, the commas alone make me wish I had wine sitting next to me instead of coffee. The second is that the style and length of the stories were not created for listening to, they were created for reading. As I said, this one today had over 200,000 words in its original form. And that's just right if you're reading every night because movies, television, and everything else hasn't been invented yet, but it's way too long for us. With these adaptations, we keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but package it up for easier digestion. This one, honestly, it tried to be a little bit of everything. A satire, an adventure, a romance, a mystery, and needless to say, we're honing in on the last bit. And so we are ready for Sergeant Cuff and the Moonstone Diamond. Jack, why don't you take us in? Chapter One, A Wilted Rose. I rang the doorbell fiercely, barely able to contain my disgust. The door opened and I brushed aside the welcoming face in a good suit. "'You've overwatered them!' said I, stepping past the butler into the foyer. "'They're all but drowned! Look at them! English roses, wilting on the stem!' The butler peered at the anemic flowers in the boxes, a.k.a. the evidence. "'Explain yourself!' demanded I. Our gardener retired, said he. They're in the responsible charge of a footman. Irresponsible charge and a poor excuse. If the cook retires, will you put the footman in charge there, too? I handed him my card. Sergeant Cuff, police detective, here at the urging of the police commissioner. Mr. Blake is expecting me. The butler expected the card and then my person. His his appraisal summarized in the arch of a single brow. The opinion of a man who allowed roses to be abused meant nothing to me. This way, said he, I will inform Mr. Blank of your arrival. The parlor door closed behind me, and I began inspection of the room, learning about the man seeking to employ me. The parlor was comfortable, well-appointed, similar in style to the butler, in much better condition than the roses. I have been in many parlors over my long career, and this was a parlor of a gentleman, professional, single, and happy to stay that way. Footsteps warned my host approached. Their quickness implied urgency. Sergeant Cuff, Roderick Blake. Good Lord, when the commissioner said he'd send his best man, I never expected he would send a legend. Legend, Exclaimed I. The title is better than Viscount. You may be better than Duke. You have a good reputation yourself, Mr. Blake. How is Parliament these days? Busy, said he. I scarcely have a moment to think. I appreciate you coming directly. Please sit. Would you like a drink? Never one to refuse a politician's finest, I settled in with the glass. I am at your service. Tell me about your problem. The problem belongs to my wife's sister, Lady Julia Verinder, said Blake. Are you acquainted with Colonel John Hearn Castle? I have heard of him, said I. He made his name and fortune in India. There was some controversy surrounding his return to England. Nothing criminal, if memory serves. Blake huffed a sound of disagreement, disgust, or both. The controversy surrounded something he brought back to England with him, a diamond known as the Moonstone. It was valuable not just for the size of the stone, but for the lore the Hindu people placed on it. Hearncastle was never an easy man to deal with, but after he acquired the Moonstone, he became the scourge of society. His friends and family turned their back on him. He was hunted by common thieves and Hindu guards alike some doubt whether the moonstone existed but i know it does herncastle deposited it with my bank under the authority of my solicitor matthew bruff entrusting me as his executor we had instructions monthly bruff would receive a letter from herncastle stating he was alive and well if the letter did not arrive by the appointed day we were to assume he was dead and execute his will i take it that day came said i what was to be done with the moonstone He bequeathed it to our niece, Rachel, Lady Julia Herncastle verinders daughter, a present for her 18th birthday. My own son, Franklin, agreed to escort the diamond from London to the Lady Verinder's home in Yorkshire. Franklin has been well-educated in the best schools on the continent. He is a man who has traveled beyond his 22 years. From the time he withdrew the diamond from the bank, he felt threatened. It wasn't overt, of course, but still he felt it. Rather than waiting until her birthday, he went directly to Yorkshire and, following good advice, deposited the diamond in the local bank. He removed it the day of Rachel's birthday, presenting to her that afternoon. The following morning, the diamond was missing. Now, I've investigated many a wayward gemstone, and the first thought always seemed to be to the maids or the grooms, but in many more times, I've found that it's a lady or gentleman in the house. The rarer the jewel, the more sophisticated the thief. What is the value of the diamond, asked I. Twenty thousand pounds, said he. A small fortune, thought I. My thief would be well-connected to make any real use of the gem. Lady Verinder called in the local police, said he. They were over their heads from the start. Accomplished little besides upsetting the household. Rachel's completely distraught, nearly inconsolable. Franklin telegraphed, for expert assistance. I can think of no one better than you. Will you go, Sergeant Cuff? I will go on one condition, said I. I finished a most excellent scotch, stood and made my non-negotiable demand. Vanquish the watering can from the rose-killing footman and employ a proper gardener. two, inside out. The trip to Yorkshire was a pain in my arse. Technically, it was my back, but not many inches away. Blake's advance made the train comfortable enough, but the carriage ride from the station to the country home tossed me about like a hot potato. It was a, with the a spirit of good riddance that I left from the carriage to the entrance of the Verinder estate. A man waiting was some year, some ten years older than my sixty years. He had the ruddy complexion of a man who lived a great deal of his life outdoors, yet here he was, dressed like the man of the house, with a disapproving face to match. Are you the London detective? Asked he. I am, said I, twisting the crack of my back. Sergeant Cuff, at your service. Sergeant Cuff. The Sergeant Cuff. I smiled, entertained that my adventures had wreaked Yorkshire. You are? Asked I. Gabriel Butteredge, house steward, he turned to the manor house. I will announce you directly to Lady Verinder. In a bit, said I, not inclined to follow. I always prefer to get the lay of the land before the maneuvers begin. Walk me about the property and tell me what you know. Butteredge set my bags on the inside of one of the stone pillars and then indicated up the hill toward the house. Our walking pace had a purpose, and the route direct toward the garden. Our conversation, by comparison, was slow, slower and meandered. Mr. Fli- Franklin Blake arrived about a month ago, he said. He spent many a day here in his childhood, and it's been a delight to have him home again. He brought with him a diamond meant as a birthday gift for Miss Rachel. Having been long acquainted with Mr. Franklin, and knowing my dear lady's brother, Mr. Franklin told me of the Stone's history and his experiences coming here. I advised him to deposit it with the bank as his uncle had. He took my advice, being a sensible young man. It remained under lock and key until two days ago. Mr. Franklin brought it back the afternoon of Miss Rachel's birthday. Better followed the path to the right, veering around the large house now this is a fine english garden said i yes a master is at work here i should want to meet your gardener mr begby if you like said Betteridge, a bit bewildered who knew mr franklin was retrieving the stone asked i just me said he he went into town with mr godfrey ablewhite and miss rachel but neither knew his true purpose you see the afternoon mr franklin arrived three Indian jugglers came to the house, uninvited. I ran them off, but the ladies of the house wanted entertainment and granted them entry. They had a young English boy with them. After they left, my daughter, Penelope, was walking along the hedge and heard them on the other side. She surmised they were talking about Mr. Franklin, using their magic to divine his location. Magic, repeated I. You believed it? Betteredge shook his head. They were not magicians, but beggars or some lot. I didn't want them in the house or near my ladies. I moved them along as quickly as I could. We have told the local man, Inspector Seagrave, about them. They apparently are accounted for that evening. I would talk to Seagrave after I made my own inspection of the scene and the witnesses. Who was in the house that day, asked I? Lady Julia Verinder and Rachel, of course. Mr. Franklin. Mr. Godfrey had arrived days before. These were present in the afternoon when Rachel was presented with her gifts. A dinner party was held in her honor. Mr. Franklin had used silver to transform the diamond into a brooch Miss Rachel wore. He's very clever, Mr. Franklin is. Very clever, thought I, and put on a pedestal by a certain steward. We had wandered beyond the garden across a wide open field. Ahead, the land fell off as though we approached the edge of the world. What of Godfrey Abelwhite, I asked. A man of highest character, said Betteridge immediately. A godly man. He is dedicated to numerous charities, giving his time and his money selflessly. In this case, however, I must say he is the second best man. Both gentlemen are interested in Miss Rachel. My daughter, Penelope, believes she should choose Mr. Godfrey. But no, Mr. Franklin is the right gentleman for my young lady. At the point where the land fell off, better edge pointed to the surf below. Be careful should you venture down there, said he. We call it shivering sand. When the tide turns, the sand goes quick. Nothing that walks, swims, or fly can free itself once it goes under. From the cliff, the peaks of Frising Hall showed in the distance. Another peak, this one lowly, stood about halfway between the manor house and the town. Were there other guests at dinner, asked I, as we began to walk again, continuing our circuit of the estate. Oh yes, twenty-four in all, he said. Family and friends came to celebrate, it was a joyous evening. Did all guests stay overnight, asked I. Those local returned to their homes, of course, said he. Several from London had taken accommodation in Friesing Hall, it was a wet night. He pointed to a set of windows on the second floor. Those are Miss Rachel's windows. There's no way to access them from the garden, short of having wings. Or a ladder, I thought, but I didn't say. Betteredge's point was clear. There was no porch, no roof, nor tree that would aid a thief in accessing the rooms from the outside in. I would like to see the room now. Betteredge accommodated me, although he insisted we met with Lady Verinder first. With her was the fabled Franklin Blake. He shook my hand energetically and, pointed me and, and joined me in Betteridge. "'Rachel is sick about the loss of the diamond,' said Blake. "'She has refused to leave her home or speak with anyone, "'including Inspector Seagrave. "'I think she blames herself.' "'Her mother practically begged Rachel "'to let her stow the diamond for her that night. "'Rachel declined, challenging what threat was there "'in her own house. "'And then this happened.' "'Betteridge opened the bedroom door.' side was a comfortable and modern sitting room of a fashionable young lady. For the most part, where the front side of the door was a beautiful natural wood, the back side was a spectacle of animals, vegetables, and, well, minerals. Rachel and I painted the door, said Blake proudly. We've been working on it for nearly a month. It's been a labor of love, said he, and I had the thought that he wasn't just talking about the door. Blake went to the interior door and knocked. "'Rachel, Sergeant Cuff is here from London. "'Rachel, he's here to find your diamond.' "'Go away, all of you. "'Just leave me alone.' "'The thick wood did little to dampen the sharp words. "'Blake looked pained. "'Forgive her, Sergeant. "'It's too much for her to deal with. "'Here, this is where she put the diamond before she retired.' "'The chest, he indicated, had five drawers. "'Most were filled with the decorations of a young, wealthy woman. "'The third one down was half-empty.' "'She placed the stone in this drawer and closed it,' asked I. "'Yes,' said Blake. "'Then I bid her goodnight and left her with her maid, Penelope.' "'Your daughter,' said I to Betteridge. "'Yes,' answered he. "'Penelope discovered the diamond was missing at 7.30 the next morning, Thursday. "'The drawer was open and the diamond gone. "'She came for me immediately.' "'Naturally,' said I. "'Tell me, Mr. Blake, was the door smudged when you were in the room?' gentlemen turned their faces to the door and the disfigured blue flower next to the keyhole. It was not, said Blake. I'm certain I would have noticed. Rachel and I worked on that part of the door on her birthday. It was the final piece. When I left, the flower was intact. Taking his testimony as fact, I began to do the maths. Paint of this type typically takes a complete day to dry. Not this bl- paint, said Blake, interrupting. I brought with me a concoction used in Italy to encourage paint to dry. 12 hours is needed, no more. We finished at 3 in the afternoon, just in time to change for tea. It is true, said Betteridge. The stuff stinks worse than a sty, but the paint dries in half the time. I knelt and inspected the smudge. It appears something is dragged across it, a skirt, perhaps. If these facts are to be believed, Our thief did not come from outside in, but inside out. Chapter Three, Above Stairs. I chose the library as my headquarters and set to interview the residents above the stairs. The following story was consistent among the storytellers. All of the guests had arrived and were enjoying Lady Verinder's generosity when Rachel made her entrance wearing the moonstone diamond. It was hung around her neck, nestled in a silver wire nest devised by Franklin Blake. The evening was festive. Rachel and the moonstone were the center of attention. All were struck by the size and beauty. Mr. Murthwaite, an Italian friend of the deceased Sir John Verinder, was the only one more wary than impressed. He warned Rachel that there were parts of his country where her life would be in danger for wearing the stone. Blake was not his normal self, as noted by his lack of laughter. He and Dr. Candy had a row of a mild type over modern medicine. Mr. White, who drank too much, made a fool of himself in talking to Mrs. Ardmore. She always refers to her husband in the present tense, though he is deceased, a fact White did not know when he recommended her husband come and see him for a consultation. Lady Verinder's niece, Drusilla Clack, was a member of one of Godfrey's pet projects and attempted to monopolize his attention. Dinner itself was enjoyed by all, but the weather forced the party to break up earlier than planned. The staff was busy attending the traveling guests, and the doors did not close until 11. Godfrey Abelwhite sat in the chair opposite me at the desk, rubbing his chin. It was an entertaining evening and not especially noteworthy, said he at least for me. Blake, on the other hand, had a trying night. He'd not been himself for days and looked on the edge of fainting. Dr. Candy prescribed opium. Blake not only refused, but took the man to task for his alchemistic ways. The doctor was insulted, asked I. No, said he. It was more like he was challenged. He laughed at Blake the way you might at a child's silliness. He held his head high and kept an eye on Blake. When the doctor left much like the canary who had outsmarted the cat. And then Mr. Franklin was in the chair. Yes, that's right, said he. I did feel poorly. I gave up smoking, and the result was a near total lack of sleep. It caught up with me. That night, of all nights, was the first good sleep I'd had since I arrived. I took a gin and tonic to my room and woke eight hours later. Even then, I could have slept for another one or two. It's difficult to clear my head, even in the chaos of the theft. Eventually I felt myself again, and it was me who called for the Friesing Hall Police and ordered the house closed down. I was certain a diamond was in the house. Where else could it go? But the inspector ordered the rooms searched and found nothing. Interesting, said I. Inspector Seagrave searched all the rooms? Blake shook his head. The staff bedrooms. It caused a row. Penelope Betteridge nearly got herself arrested. See, she was the last to see the diamond and the one to discover it missing. He took a deep breath. It was the kind one takes when considering saying something useful to a detective. You noticed something, asked I. He had a look of guilt about him. Not exactly, said he. I feel compelled to tell you something, and at the same time, I'm sure it had nothing to do with what we're talking about. I don't want to point you at an innocent. "'Understandable, Mr. Blake,' said I, putting his mind at ease. "'I promise you I do not jump to conclusions as Inspector Seagrave did. "'I look at all the information, piecing together the clues that matter, "'discarding the ones that don't. "'What you know may be the piece that ties the others together.' "'I doubt it,' said he. "'After breakfast on Thursday, before Seagrave arrived, "'I was in the billiard room. "'Lady Verinder's maid came in. "'She returned a ring I had dropped.' I thanked her for it, although I wondered why she had not just put it on my dresser. She also attends to the room I use. For whatever reason, she didn't. After I thanked her, she... Well, she lingered. Her gaze was uncomfortable. Eventually, she said something strange. Something to the effect of, no one would ever find the diamond and who took it. She would make sure of that. I was about to ask her what she meant, but Edge came in and the gir- girl hurried away. You told this to Seagrave, asked I, knowing the answer. No, said he. The inspector wasn't interested in speaking to me. He felt me a nuisance. Did Miss Rachel talk to Seagrave, asked I. Lady Verinder held herself in a dignified manner. No, my daughter has refused to speak to anyone. She is anguished over the loss. She is barely eating. Only what Penelope can coax into her. Is she blaming Penelope, asked I. "'No, no, the two are very close,' said the lady. "'When Penelope's mother died, I insisted Gabriel bring her to the nursery "'while he executed his duties. "'I know what Seagrave thought, but Penelope is as above reproach as her father. "'No, look elsewhere for the thief-sergeant.' "'What of your own maid?' asked I. "'Rosanna?' asked she. "'She's been with me about a year and has given me no cause to doubt her. "'She keeps to herself and isn't prone to the gossiping of others her age.' I doubt she could have had anything to do with it. I kept her busy till nearly one, when she went to her room. We were both exhausted. After concluding the interview with the mother, I again tried the daughter. The result was the same. Orders shouted through a locked door. generous enough to loan me his room to interview the staff. His daughter was first and immediately I could see the mistake my predecessor made. I didn't do it. Penelope stood with her arms crossed over her stomach. Why would I take Rachel's diamond? It's worth a great deal of money, said I. It would make a rich woman out of you. She laughed. If I was going to nick something, I would take candlesticks or something I could get real money for, not some diamond the size of a chestnut that everyone is after everyone, asked I. She flipped her hand as if it were an answer. There are stories about Hindu soldiers searching across the world for it. Maybe they aren't true, but maybe they are. Are you talking about the Indian performers, asked I. I saw them, said she. They poured black powder into this little boy's hand and asked him if the man they were looking for was on his way. The boy said it wasn't clear. They asked him more questions, questions enough that I knew they were looking for Mr. Franklin. I I heard of the magic, said I. But tell me about that night. It was near midnight, said she. Miss Rachel placed the diamond in the cabinet. Lady Verinder, Mr. Franklin, and I were in the room. Both wished her good night and happy birthday. Then I went into her bedroom and got her ready. I left and went directly to my room. It had been a very long day. Very good, said I. Now think carefully. Did you notice the door when you left? was the blue flower near the keyhole smudged. No, sir, said she. I'm sure it wasn't. I helped Mr. Franklin and Miss Rachel with the painting that afternoon. I knew it was wet and took care not to brush against it. Next, Rosanna Spearman stood before me, Lady Verinder's maid. The girl was what would have been plain, except for a misshapen shoulder. She wasn't someone you'd likely forget. I had known her two years prior, when I arrested her for stealing. She described her responsibilities as the upstairs maid, which included keeping the laundry book. My questions about her movement resulted in the same story as her lady told, working until the early morning hours and then falling quickly asleep. Bring me the laundry book, said I. Rosanna frowned at my request, but complied. I read through the entries, looking for a balloon stain notated. I did not find one. When was the last time you were in Miss Rachel's room, asked I. I don't go in there, said she. Penelope is her maid. As I said, I take care of Lady Verinder and clean the guest rooms, including those used by Mr. Franklin and Mr. Godfrey. Rosanna would not look at me. I wasn't sure if it was because she remembered me from our last meeting or if she was guilty of something new. I was halfway through dismissing her when she seized the initiative all but running out of the room. Cook came next, who had also been ruffled by Seagrave. Cook, being the cook, hadn't left the kitchen that night. She knew nothing of the events other than her horrid experience of having her room searched. There was nothing you saw, asked I. Nothing you heard, nothing out of place. Not that night, said she. But the next day, Rosanna took to her bed after finishing the bulk of her duties. We couldn't convince her to eat. It was as if she'd caught Miss Rachel's melancholy. When did she rejoin the world, asked I. Today, and she doesn't look as though she slept for days. Of course, that's what happens when you moon over your betters. The girl won't have a chance with a mag like that, even if she weren't born ugly. Mr. Godfrey, ventured I. Mr. Franklin, corrected she. She is younger than she looks, and her behavior proves it. Mr. Franklin is practically betrothed to Miss Rachel. What's he want with the lady's maid? Nothing, I tell you. After cook, I saw Better Edge again. I need to consult with Lady Verinder. The efficient steward led me to the lady of the house, who was with Mr. Blake and Mr. Godfrey. Have you solved the mystery, asked she, her complexion without color. I am making progress. I believe the smudge on the door is a valuable clue. The evidence says that the painted door was dry at three in the morning, with Miss Rachel retiring near midnight, the thief acted between those hours. In making their escape, they brushed against the paint. When I find the clothing, I find the thief, and then, it reasons, I find the diamond." Lady Verinder looked to Mr. Blake, who nodded his concurrence. "'My lady,' said I, "'my predecessor blundered in the handling of your staff. They are sensitive to my presence as it is, yet I must search for the stain. I respectfully ask permission to search all of the rooms, including those of your family and guests.' The lady gasped. Surely you aren't accusing my family of stealing. Experience guided me through the trap. Of course not, my lady. Consider that if you permit to search your rooms when you are completely above suspicion, then the staff will believe the same when I say that this is a logical matter in the course of the investigation. I see your logic, said she. I will give you permission to search my rooms, but I will not override the wishes of my guests and my family they will need to grant you permission separately. Agreed, said I, and I will only conduct a search if all agree. If anyone will not permit the search, it will not be done at all. Of course search mine, said Franklin. If it will help to get the bottom of this, search it twice. I would consent too, said Mr. Godfrey, but will Rachel? She did not. Mr. Franklin tried reasoning with her to see the work I was doing on her behalf, Her reaction was to become more unreasonable. Back in Betterbridge's room, Mr. Begbie, the gardener, made his appearance. Have you noticed anything out of the ordinary, asked I, since the disappearance of the diamond? His brows reached his hairline. Earlier today, before you arrived, Lady Verinder's maid was hiding behind the shrubbery. She was awaiting Mr. Franklin, from what I could tell. He didn't notice her, his mind on other things I imagined. She cleared out before I could move her along. She didn't do any damage, so I didn't mention it before. This last part was to Better Edge. Chapter 5. In Town Having spent the bulk of my life investigating crime, the bed, my bed is more often vacant than occupied. Passing this night on the couch in Rachel Verinder's sitting room neared the top on the comfort scale. Better Edge offered a warm and clean bed, but the room did not afford the view I required. Rachel knew something about the theft. Of this I was certain. Rosanna also knew something about the se- theft. Of this I was equally certain. Past history told me Rosanna was capable of taking the diamond, but this was too sophisticated for her. There was another hand in. My goal was to disrupt communication between Rosanna and Rachel. Positioned as I was, Rachel could not leave and Rosanna could not enter without waking me. I closed my eyes in the dark of night and woke to a confused maid, Penelope Betteredge. Quickly, my brain began to function, realizing that nothing had happened the night before, exactly as I planned. With the household busy and Rachel still refusing to leave her room, I borrowed a horse and went to Friesing Hall. The village was charming, as English villages tend to be. Well-tended homes with equally tended front gardens. Flower boxes spilled over with the colors of the season, not a one suffering from the heavy hand of a watering can. The constabulary was easily found, as when the inspector named Seagrave. We discussed the case, what he saw, and what he heard. In his enthusiasm to find the diamond, he had forced the household staff out of their rooms. He found nothing criminal or even interesting. While he preened with pride at his forward thinking, I bit my tongue at the difficulty he created. The staff had reason to detest police presence and would be far from forthcoming with me. I couldn't say this, of course. Inspectors are the English roses of the force, the varietal of the most delicate nature. Detected being outside Seagrave's normal duties. He was happy to hand the case over. The three Indians were his guests. Even sitting in cells, it was easy to see that there was nothing common about the trio. They were gentlemen of learning and skill, their eyes bright and shrewd. They realized I was their best chance at release and spoke readily. At the time, the diamond was in full view on Rachel Verinder's breast. The trio was in the dining room of the rooming house fact easily confirmed with their hostess, which I would do to be thorough, but I was satisfied they had not stolen the diamond. They looked as disconcerted in the diamond's loss as Lady Verinder. Well, I had no doubt they would have stolen the diamond if they'd had the chance, the chance they did not have. As I was bidding Seagrave goodbye, he mentioned that one of Verinder's mates had been seen in town the afternoon of the discovery. He knew Rosanna's name, and her deformity made her a very conspicuous woman. Following his direction, I visited a local shop. Rosanna had purchased material of the type and quantity for making a nightgown. This was while she was presumed to be in her room, nursing a headache and melancholy. It naturally led to the theory that it was Rosanna's nightgown that brushed against the still wet paint. I returned to Seagrave and put the question to him. Dash it all. The man was so intent on the diamond, he failed to note if the maid had a nightgown, let alone if it was besmirched with blue. I made my return to the Verinder estate, enlisting Betteredge's assistance. I had no hope of finding the nightgown in Rosanna's room. Too much time had passed, and she was too smart, too experienced. Were I her, I would have disposed of the cloth at my earliest convenience. You want to search the rubbish, sir? Betteredge teetered between offended and disgusted. The rubbish and any other likely disposal point of clothing. Search the flues, the bins, everywhere. In defense of his lady's house, Betteredge insisted on searching with me. His company was welcome. Sifting through rubbish bins was always more enjoyable with others. I breached the subject of Rosanna Spearman. Betteredge knew the girl's history. She's had a hard life, said Betteredge, and had been a faithful servant to Lady Verinder. She wouldn't have stolen the diamond. More so, said he, she didn't have the opportunity to. Peered into a fireplace so clean the base shined. So say you, and you may be right. But she was seen in Frising Hall the afternoon after the theft at a time she was thought to be in her room. She had taken sick, by all accounts, A lie. She bought cloth enough to make a nightgown. The most logical reason would be to replace her own, one that had suddenly become unusable. Betteredge did not want to believe, but his mind could not dismiss the rationality. Inspector Seagrave would have found it, said he. I shook my head. Seagrave only looked for the diamond. Let us talk to Rosanna, said he. She will have an explanation, I am certain. Betteredge settled us into his room after sending for Rosanna. After many long minutes, it was determined she was not in the house. The great search began of the property with no sign of Rosanna. She didn't leave, Betteredge declared. There's nothing missing from her room. True, said I. Where would she have gone? After a moment's thought, Betteredge began across the estate grounds. Lucy Yoland is her friend. Her family lives in the cottage near the cove. The distance of some three miles were easily covered, and us two old men were on a mission. We approached the cottage with only the peak visible between the estate and the village. Mrs. Yolen was a robust woman, her face already reddened by the early morning's early summer sun. She was an equally abundant host, setting pints of fortifying ale in front of the pair of us. Rosanna was here this morning. The woman's accent was as thick as her ale. Thank goodness Betteridge translated. She's planning a trip and brought some odds and ends with me, fr- or bought some odds and ends from me, a tin a length of chain she was anxious to leave she used lucy's room room to write a letter when my daughter lucy hadn't returned by the time she finished she took her leave she was excited to travel asked betteredge a man of his own mind did she say where she was going she was not excited said mrs euland quite the opposite. She seemed a chick about to leap from the nest, terrified but determined. I had a thought to hold on to her, but she wasn't mine now, was she? If she's of a mind to make her way in the world, I'm not one to stop her. I finished my ale, no easy feat, and rose. Betteridge took my signal and did the same. We left Mrs. Yolen with our thanks, and her promise to send Rosanna to us if she returned. I didn't think she would, and Neither did Better Edge. We know she wasn't leaving, said he. Her clothing and all was still in her room, including her nightgown. I know it, said I. It was a fact that Rosanna Spearman's nightgown was neatly folded in a drawer. It weren't new and it weren't blue. It only added more mystery to her actions. Betteredge stopped suddenly. Oh, dear Lord, no. His face lost all expression and color. I thought the man might faint. Easy, man, said I. The cove, the sands. That was her place. He moved now, twice as fast as when we came. The day before Miss Rachel's birthday, I found her there, crying. She wouldn't tell me about what. Penelope says she's in love with Mr. Franklin, but there's no sense in that. Still, she was wretchedly upset about something or someone. As I roused her to go back to the house, she said, Dear God, Cuff, she said she often thought the sands would be the death of her. It took us time, time we didn't have to cover the miles to the cove. We reached the bluff, two old men standing with hands planted on our knees. Our two pair of eyes searched the rocks and the sands and the surf below. There, shouted he. He began his descent more fast than careful. Easy, ordered I. I'll not carry the both of you back. He paid no heed, slipping and sliding down until he stumbled onto the large rocks at the bottom. Reaching between the two, he withdrew a brightly colored cloth. Rosanna! Rosanna! called he. But we were alone. What was here would be here forevermore. Chapter 6. The House Empties The death of Rosanna Spearman was a black cloak draped over the Verinder estate. Lady Verinder came to me, her state most unladylike. Mr. Blake followed in her wake. You are answerable for this. Gabriel, give this wretch his money and get him out of my sight, decreed she. I am no more responsible for these events than you are, my lady," said I. If in the next thirty minutes you are not satisfied with my progress, I will accept your dismissal, but not your money. What can thirty minutes do that two days cannot, said she, storming back from where she came. None had been especially close to Rosanna, better daughter being the exception. She looked to her father and then pulled a letter from her apron. I found this in her room, said she, addressed to you. Betteredge opened the letter. Grief spilled over, tears streaming down her cheeks. She did it, Cuff. She killed herself. He handed me the letter. With my own eyes, I read her gratitude for Betteredge's kindness, her apology for her failings, and her request to be remembered when he saw the shivering sand. Why would she resort to such an extreme? It was because of Mr. Franklin, said Penelope, better edged through tears. I told her over and over that he weren't meant for her. Even if her shoulder hadn't been twisted, the kind of man he was just weren't meant for the kind of girls we are. I never thought she'd do such a thing. Her father wrapped her in his arms, pulling her head to his shoulders. You were a good friend to Rosanna, the best. Lucy Yolin, said Penelope. She was Rosanna's best friend, but I tried to be good to her. A bell sounded. Betteredge set his daughter aside. Cook, can you make something to soothe Penelope? I'll be back directly. He looked at me. Lady Verinder calls. Followed him into the library where Lady Verinder was in nearly the same state as Penelope Betteredge. What is it, my lady? asked Betteredge. Rachel has left me, said she. She went to Frising Hall to stay with my sister, Mrs. Abelwhite. Godfrey escorted her. The lady then looked upon me. While there may be some excuse for my behavior half hour ago, I do not claim it. I say in all sincerity that I regret wronging you. I do not recall being wronged, my lady, said I. I have learned of a reason that may explain Rosanna Spearman's decision to end her life, but I hesitate to accept it as a sole answer. We are getting closer to the secrets of the theft, and now is not the time to get up. There is one who holds the key to all of this. You are referring to my daughter, said she. I had hoped we could conclude our business without bringing her name into this. That is impossible, said I. Looked upon this objectively, my lady. Miss Verinder has behaved aggressively toward Inspector Seagrave and myself, refusing to answer even the most basic questions. She has rejected any discourse with Mr. Blake, a man I understand she considered marrying. All three of us, my lady, have only sought to return the diamond to Miss Verinder. When all the rooms of the house were to be inspected, she not only refused, she ended the line of query. Every action points to Miss Verinder not wanting the stone to be found. You think Rachel is secreting it away, said she. I do, said I. Perhaps she has debts she does not wish to acknowledge. It is a more common problem than one may realize. A diamond of that value in the right hands can solve many problems. That is the conclusion from Plain Facts. What does your experience tell you, my lady? Lady Verinder looked a delicate flower on the edge of winter, her lips tinged with blue. The circumstances have misled you, said she. I know my daughter. She did not do as you describe. She has no secret debts. She has no knowledge of the type of people one would need to raise funds from such a stone. There, said I, is where Rosanna Spearman came in. I'm acquainted with her background, my lady, as it was I who arrested her. She was acquainted with a moneylender who is skilled in the art of liquidity. His name is Septimus Lucre, and I have no doubt that Rosanna provided his name and address to your daughter. Lady Verinder sat back on the chase, color slowly returning to her lips. I am afraid I cannot accept your solution, Sergeant. If what you say were true, why would Rosanna kill herself? Once the moonstone was sold, she would have enough money to be a lady of her own house. Why choose the sand? do not know, said I. I propose an experiment. Your daughter is of high emotion. Perhaps we can persuade her to talk. She does not know of Rosanna's death. If we use the knowledge as if a club, it is possible she will feel the weight of her decision and fill in the pieces. After talking through other options, each less agreeable than the first, Lady Verinder insisted on being the one to speak to her daughter. She packed the bag and set out for Frizing Hall. The house was for his bachelors, Blake, Betteredge, myself. I passed the evening debating with Begbie on the topic of whether the white rose, white moss rose grows better with or without butting it on the dog rose. He chose the losing side of the argument. The next day, the carriage Rachel had taken to Friesing Hall returned without passengers. The, letter d- the driver delivered a letter to Betteredge. He read it in front of Blake and myself. The experiment had failed. Lady Verinder was taking Rachel to London to heal. I was relieved of my duties. Then she's gone, said Blake, low as a man can be. There is nothing left for me here. Funny, when I arrived with that cursed diamond, this was a happy house. For a short time, I was happy. Now look at it. Look at me, he inhaled deeply. I must put England behind me for a time. Mr. Franklin said, "Betteredge astonished. Must you leave? How can I be in a country, said he, knowing Rachel is here and loathing me. If she would have only talked to me, I am certain we could have resolved this. He turned to me, taking my hand. I am grateful for all you did for Rachel, Sergeant Cuff. I accepted the man's hand, agreeing with his opinions on on Rachel's silence. I regret I was not able to do more, said I. Blake gave orders for his carriage to be ready and climbed the stairs to pack. Please, Sergeant Cuff, said Betteredge, allow me to pay you for the efforts. No, said I, the job is not complete. If your lady should want to complete the task, I will be at your service. I will leave you with three predictions. Shortly, you will hear from Yolen College, Cottage, with a message from Rosanna. Second, you will hear the three Indians again. In fact, wherever Rachel is, they won't be far. Finally, you will hear of the London money lenderer, Luger. In the meantime, sir, I carry away with me a sincere personal liking for you, which I think does honor to both of us. If we do not meet again before my professional retirement take place, I hope you will come and see me in a little house near London, which I have my eye on. There will be grass walks, Mr. Betteredge, I promise you, in my garden. And as for the white moss rose, the devil you'll get the white moss rose to grow unless you butt it on the dog rose first, the cry came through the window. We both turned around. There was Begbie at the window, equally eager for the controversy. Beyond him was the pony chase, at the ready with my bag. I wrung Betteredge's hand, ask him about the moss rose when he comes back, and see if I've left him a leg to stand on. But this is where this episode ends, with Cuff being sacked. He didn't really get a chance to solve the mystery, did he? I mean, Rachel won't talk to him, he can't search the rooms. Rosanna killed herself rather than talk to anyone. In two weeks, we'll pick up the story a year later when Franklin Blake returns to England, determined to solve the mystery of the diamond and win Rachel back. We'll find out if Cuff's three predictions come true and if his theories were right. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bad Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website. Everything's appreciated. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolfe, with contribution from Jack Wolfe. Sergeant Cuff and the Moonstone Diamond was written by T.G. Wolfe, adapted from the Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Join us in two weeks for episode 5B, Franklin Blake Returns. Jack, with that, why don't you take us out?